Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm delighted to be joined by David Wengrow, who has co-authored an absolutely riveting book, which is a sensational bestseller now, which was co-written, of course, by the late, great, uh, co-written with the late, great David Graeber. Uh, before we start, I should apologize because I do have a non-COVID cough. I've done the Rona. That was fun. Now it's just one of the many other respiratory illnesses that have receded into the hinterland and now are back with a vengeance, aren't they, David? Have you got similar? How's your how's your respiratory functions? If, I, if I'm just talked out from from doing too much talking and teaching and interviews, or if I've still got like some lingering. Anyway, I, I sympathise, and I think if we can cough roughly at the same time, maybe might yeah. cancel. <clears throat> Synchronised coughing. That's we'll do that. There'll be a lot of that this winter, I think. Um, mm. The revenge of the respiratory illnesses. So, The Dawn of Everything. This is a fascinating book because what it seeks to do, and you actually, I know you quote, uh, you've quoted David Graeber when he says, we're going to change the course of human history starting with the past. So, just to explain what this book is, this book tries to re-examine, re-imagine our understanding of human history, which there've been several books which have sought to do this. And I suppose the point of doing so is because of the implications it has for our future in terms of mm. how the potential, the, the possibilities of how human, uh, for, for different forms of human organisation. So just talk through, what is your book? What's your the book you've both written, which you took a very long time, both of you, to write? What's its thesis? What's it challenging? And what's it seeking to do? So the book um, actually started as a different kind of project. We originally wanted to make a contribution to the literature on social inequality, which is an archaeologist, which is me, and an anthropologist, which is David. We wanted to talk about the origins of social inequality. Um, but it quickly became apparent that this is what most of the other big history books do. Um, but why do they do it? Why do we frame history that way in the first place? You know, it implies that humanity begins with something else, maybe a society of equals, or there's a time that somehow exists before structural inequalities, and then something is meant to happen, the origins of farming or the origins of cities, and there's meant to be a, a kind of fall from grace. And if you think about it, that's a rather familiar trope. Uh, it's a biblical trope uh, for a start, but it's also rooted in the way that the great Enlightenment philosophers, uh, people like uh, the Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, framed the whole question of humanity in its state of nature. Um, and it's very odd because <clears throat> we've had um, archaeology, anthropology, scientific approaches to history for over 100 years now, 
it would be a bit strange if all of the results coming out of every continent on Earth somehow confirmed a theory that was basically dreamed up as a kind of hypothesis or a fable or an allegory, you know, sometime in the 18th century. And strangely enough, if you pick up the, you know, the big bestsellers on, on human history, uh, Sapiens and books like that, Jared Diamond's books, that's basically what they tell you. So um, we wanted to question this. We wanted to tell readers uh, a lot more um, about this new picture of human history and human capacities, human possibilities that's been emerging from our fields over the last 20 or 30 years. But most of it's still locked up in specialist scientific journals. Specialists aren't necessarily synthesizing or talking to each other. So that was one thing. And then as we started to do it, um, we began to realize the implications, for example, about um, uh, what happens to human societies as they scale up. You know, this is very entrenched idea that, for example, if we want participatory democracy, um, that's fine, you know, on a small scale, um, but impossible to achieve on the scale of anything like a, a nation or a, even a city. Um, but then we found actually, no, you know, a lot of the evidence for the first uh, urban settlements in human history tell us just the opposite. Uh, they don't, a uh, surprising number of them, not all of them, but a, a surprising number, don't actually seem to have any evidence for top-down systems of authority. So, you know, this is important. But a lot of this knowledge just isn't really out there. And I think if we we can take for granted that where we are right now as, as, a, as a species, as a society on this planet, um, is a time when either we change uh, the system we're in, or by general consent, uh, not just activists, but also scientists, um, we are heading towards something really unpleasant. So the book is really about that. It's about our capacity as a species for change. And what we feel the evidence tells us these days is that we've basically been sold a kind of false prospectus of what those possibilities are based on bad history, out-of-date sources, um, and, and generally sort of myth-making. It's a kind of contemporary mythology that once we lived in societies of equals and history has just been this kind of inevitable downward slide into something that now appears to be pretty catastrophic. Um, so, yes, you know, there is a contemporary point, um, but we actually feel that history and the scientific evidence is on the side of change, which is not a message you hear very often. I think a lot of these, uh, just interrupt me if I'm whittling on, but I think a lot of these um, big history books, they, you know, they, they make you feel small. Mm -hmm. Big history makes you feel small. By the time you finish the book, you think there's no point trying to change anything because, you know, some, some great sort of force of social evolution is going to wash over me and crush me to death. Um, so I'd like to think we've written a big history book that's, that's A, more realistic and closer to the evidence. Um, and as a result, doesn't actually tell you that. What it actually shows you is the, the incredible creativity of our species throughout its entire history. Um, and the fact that things that we consider to be these kind of incredibly rare occurrences or accidents of history, including democracy itself, are actually not that rare. 
Um, many examples of them, once we move outside a rather narrow sort of you know, European Greeks and Romans view of world history, um, human societies have been much more flexible and much more adaptive um, than I think we generally give ourselves credit for. So I'm not yes, sure but, no, all no, the We'll wrap up now. No, exactly. No, we've got more to we've got more to talk about. That's the point. Thank you for your time. Goodbye. No, it has been pointed out that the the font of the book bears a suspicious resemblance to Star Wars. Um, so if we can angle this right, and you can remember how the opening music goes, we might might be able to pull off a new. Hope. Do you know what? Weirdly, I was trying to remember it now, and I've got the um, Superman music in my head. It's really annoying. That always happens. Just like when you get the 20th Century Fox logo, there's always a little part of you that hopes it's going to be Star Wars. That's not... Is that Star Wars? No, no. That is Superman. Start doing the Star Wars thing. Start doing the Star Wars. We're not going to be able to do it now because Superman mentally... Hold on. Superman overrides Star Wars. Hold on, I know. I I know this is an extremely. We're having a very. This is supposed to be a very incisive video about the intellectual. Well, look uh, at all all these books. um, All these books are these are real books. Star Wars music. I'm not going to carry on until I'm not going to carry on because what what I want to do for those who are watching this, for those who are watching this while they're listening to the podcast, I want um, you to do this with the book as I do the music. Once so I'm just going to remember, we're going to do this. I'm not going to go off. Oh, and wait, somebody, actually, somebody did this on Twitter already, so I'm just ripping them off because I didn't think of it, but it, it's kind of... I haven't weird. seen it. I haven't yeah. seen it. Right, it's annoying because I have to wait for the ad to finish on YouTube, so we'll just keep What's filling that in. Here we, go. Here we go. Here we go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I just need the opening bars. The galaxy far, far oh, yeah. away. Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. Hold on. Come on. I'll just wait for the... Dun, 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 I'm at work. All my colleagues are going to see this. And yeah, they're going to see how productive. And I'm not meant to have fun. So, David, pivoting from the Star Wars theme, um, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of people would look at many of the orthodoxies of human history and it appeals to their basic common sense, which is when yes. things are primitive and human societies are very complicated, sure, hierarchy can do without all that. Things get more complicated. Land labor all these things have to be managed and from those complexities that management comes inequality and that is therefore baked into mm. the, the 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 shift towards more complicated forms of organization so if you want um right. a more complicated society suck it up you're getting inequality biggest go complex, on take it down biggest complex smallest simple Eight billion people on the planet were basically screwed. Yeah, I mean that—that's that, the underlying kind of um, meta narrative, if you like, um, that, that I think most of us take for granted. <laughs> A point that um, David Graeber um, often made, which um, is in the book in various forms, 
is that if you actually reflect on it, it's not that commonsensical at all. Um, are small groups really egalitarian? How many examples do we find in human history of egalitarian families or egalitarian households? That's actually pretty difficult, you know. I mean, there are a very, very unusual, rare occurrences where that happens and you get societies that have very extreme forms of uh, egalitarianism, but they're hardly historically common. Whereas actually, uh, it turns out that um, big systems of organization uh, like uh, regional confederacies or cities, a surprising number of those are actually quite robustly egalitarian in their organization. So that, you know, our common sense um, in many ways um, may just be back to front. Interesting. So if we're going to talk about hierarchy and why it mm. emerges, what's the answer? Why, why at certain periods in human history mm -hmm. do you get often extreme hierarchies, which are based on mm -hmm. submission and various forms of oppression and exploitation and justice? What is the what are the ingredients that lead to that kind of hierarchy? Well, the first point I would make is that it's wrong to think that there's some threshold in human history where hierarchy appears. As far back as we can trace the archaeological evidence for how human societies were organized, which is roughly thirty or forty thousand years, we get enough evidence to begin to say something. Um, we can see evidence for hierarchy. The question is, where is that hierarchy located in an overall system of social experience? So, for example, in the last ice age, uh, in various parts of Europe and Asia, uh, there are these burials of individuals who are put into their graves like princes and princesses or kings or queen are absolutely soaked and saturated with wealth and regalia and fancy weaponry. But there's no evidence in, uh, in the Ice Age that we have anything like a, a territorial kingdom or, you know, stratification or aristocracy in other areas of life. Um, so it's very odd. We seem to have hierarchies that are kind of caged in these sort of ritual sort of costume dramas and actually anthropologically uh, that's quite a well documented thing where you have hierarchies that either only exist for part of the year as part of a kind of seasonal ritual or carnival or that are so constrained in terms of um, you know what it means to be at the top of that system king has to spend all of his time performing peculiar uh, rituals and ceremonies so can't really get involved in politics uh, at all. It's what anthropologists call divine kingship. So with a lot of these things, it's more a question of how did hierarchy break out of those cultural cages? Not how did hierarchy originate? Similarly with private property. You know, if we think about our notion of private property, when you own something, what does that actually mean in legalistic terms? Well, you know, the, um, the sociologist and philosopher C.B. McPherson uh, called it possessive individualism. If you own something, it's almost like there's this kind of invisible force field uh, around it. You know, nobody else can touch it or enter it. And we even apply that to our own bodies. So the reason somebody can't just punch you or sexually assault you in legal, in our legal terms, in our legal tradition, is weirdly enough because you own your own body. Um, now, if we look at the origins of that idea, it's very, very close to what many cultures' idea of the sacred is. They also have that notion, but it applies to 
very specific religious sacred objects and only uh, these these rules only apply in very specific contexts like initiation rituals and so on so it's not that these concepts kind of suddenly appear at some particular point in human history they're more like what scientists call emergent properties they're there but they're kind of caged or wrapped up in particular contexts so a lot of what we do in the book is look at the various ways in which forms of hierarchy break out of those more restricted forms and eventually, uh, in, in many cases, become generalized uh, so that, in fact, today uh, we've more or less normalized um, some very hierarchical uh, uh, ways of thinking and ways of treating each other, uh, which historically are quite uncommon. In terms of Western identity, and often, to be honest, the sense of Western supremacism, the Enlightenment plays a very big role in all of that. Mm. And I suppose the kind of conventional narrative is the Enlightenment was this kind of originated in the confines of Christendom of Western Europe and Mm. had a civilising influence on the rest of the world. But you take that on, don't you, both of you? Well, we're certainly not the first to do it. There's a, there's a long history of um, actually looking at, at the interactions between Enlightenment thinkers and non-Western traditions. There's the whole theory about the so-called radical Enlightenment and what it might owe to Spinoza and Jewish traditions, for example. Um, many of the great Enlightenment thinkers themselves attributed their ideas to other civilizations. Uh, Leibniz famously advocated for uh, Chinese models of uh, how to organize a a modern country. Uh, That's how we end up with a national curriculum. My son is resetting his maths exam this very day. Uh, And the idea that, you know, you have a linguistically uniform population and so on. Um, The the strange thing is that historians are perfectly aware of this. uh, And yet we can still convince ourselves somehow that the Enlightenment is this kind of, as you say, you know, something that sort of springs up through some strange convoluted process between the ancient traditions of the Mediterranean, Greece and Rome, and then it vanishes for a few thousand years, and then a small group of philosophers in northwestern Europe somehow bring it back. One of the, the kind of things we realized uh, in researching the book is just how much what we call the Enlightenment actually owes to indigenous intellectuals in the Americas. That's a big um, big takeaway from the book, which actually frames our whole approach to the rest of human history. Very good. See, we're just slaying sacred cows here, willy-nilly. In terms of um, human nature, because... The whole narrative on human nature, or the sense, the idea of human nature, mm. is very much something which has been used to justify and rationalise inequality and particularly the form of capitalism, rapacious capitalism that we have today, that mm. humans are innately selfish and self-interested, competitive, competitive acquisitive, you know, full of, driven by acquisitive, acquisitive, acquisitive spirit um, yes. and Thatcherism obviously really went hard on all that and you mm. know there's no such no thing as society, society. Only individuals yeah. and their families and you know that that and therefore mm. 
attempts to form egalitarian societies are seen as doomed because they go against the grain of human nature. And that's what led to totalitarianism because only tyranny could allow something against that nature to, to prevail. So that's obviously the kind of reaction we take yeah. on the idea of human nature. So what's from your view of history yes. and, and this book, what is, is the human, is there a human nature? What is human nature if it does exist? Well, I'd, I'd say that, you know, if, if we had to make a, a big generalization about human nature based on, um, on our findings, um, it's that we are not innately anything. Um, we're not innately good. We're not innately evil. You know, if you, if you are kind of a neo-Hobbesian thinker like Steven Pinker, you assume that we're, as you said just now, we're sort of innately competitive and acquisitive and, 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 and warlike. Uh, no, there's no evidence for that, you know go back into the actual record of human history as far back and look at the evidence, uh, it's simply not true. You know, we actually don't have um, particularly high statistical rates for things like warfare and interpersonal violence in, in the Paleolithic period and you know, the Stone Age. Um, and uh, equally, we're not innately good. We're not innately altruistic. What we find, um, again, as far back as the evidence takes us, is that if we're anything, we're actually a much more playful and creative and inventive species than we generally sort of convince ourselves. So a lot of the things that we feel trapped us, we're, you know, we're taught to think trapped us down a particular path of development, like the invention of agriculture, for example, well, no. It turns out that those thresholds were actually periods of amazing creativity and playfulness so people don't fall into the harari book where he talks about the wheat trap we get trapped by the wheat and suddenly you know we're, we're doing all this work and hard labor and setting up hierarchies and we have surplus and from surplus comes private property but it turns out none of that is actually true if you look at the evidence supplied by archaeology and anthropology today what humans were doing for thousands of years was kind of putting one foot into agriculture and then taking the measure of it and stepping out again or mixing crop farming up with all kinds of other funky activities like fishing and hunting and, and gathering all kinds of nuts and berries. Um, so the points of human history that, you know, are supposed to be the ones that make us stuck in our current uh, social arrangements um, really turn out not to be. And uh, those are two kind of big messages of the book. Um, one is that it wasn't the origins of farming that set us on this this particular path. Um, and the other is that, you know, it really wasn't the scaling up of human populations to, to urban scales either. So what was it? Back to your earlier question. You know, how do we get stuck in very hierarchical patterns of authority? I have a feeling you're going to ask me why. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, well, go, yeah, I was actually. So now I've been preempted. And part, <clears throat> as you can hear, my voice is on its last leg. So rather, I'm still talking. Answer it. Go on, go. Well, this is. This is, I mean, we, we, this, this is an area that um, we feel that we've narrowed down the range of questions and we feel that the answers actually lie on the small scale of human affairs. Things like gender relations, uh, age relations, relations between the young and the old, relations within households, domestic servitude, slavery. Um, all of these things can be documented on a small scale. People don't often realise this, uh, but slavery, for example, is actually documented among many hunter-gatherer societies in relatively, you know, demographically small units, societies that don't actually practice farming. Um, and it's there in that very sort of intimate um, scale of human relationships that we feel the most kind of stubborn and insidious and structural forms of inequalities take root. The question then is, how do those scale up? And here we notice the pattern which is something we, we spell out in the book, although a number of reviewers seem to have missed it. Um, but it's certainly something that we would have wanted to expand on in, in later uh, work, which is that things like um, extreme hierarchy, violence, warfare, um, in themselves, although they're always unpleasant, um, may not alter the structure of society in any dramatic way. What does happen, though, is that you get systems of violence and domination that get mixed up or confused with their opposites. In other words, with systems of care. And I'll give you an illustration in a moment. But that seems to be a moment at which domination and hierarchy and violence become more embedded and more durable in the way people actually interact with each other on a routine basis. So if you take an area that I'm, I've been very interested in in my own research, uh, ancient Egypt, uh, doesn't really get much more hierarchical in many ways. You've got pyramids and so on, and eventually empires and foreign conquests and slavery certainly exists. Um, but once a year, or twice a year, most of the country's working population, or at least its male working population, would come together and be engaged in these enormous sort of caring projects where, you know, they're building a pyramid temple for the king and making sure that the king is well looked after and is cared for as an illustrious ancestor. Um, so you get this strange mixture of, of, of domination and care, and it can happen at a small scale or at a large scale. And we provide various examples in, in the book. And I think, I think there, um, is where we began to find some of the answers to these questions. But it's it's something that really needs more research because I think we've just been asking the wrong questions for a very long time. We've been asking, what is the origin 
of social inequality? What is the origin of inequality? Um, well, if we never existed in societies of equals, and if we're not innately anything, um, then essentially we've been barking up the wrong tree. And we need to be thinking more about how we got stuck in a situation where that whole capacity to actually transform ourselves, just to remake societies in different forms, which it turns out our ancestors were doing willy-nilly. We've got examples in the book of societies that just flip their whole political structure um, on a seasonal basis. So there'll be hierarchical one time of the year, very egalitarian another time of the year. So the kind of jumping in and out of these different social frameworks and skins um, and doing things that we would consider impossible. Um, so there are basic human freedoms at stake. In fact, you know, if we've lost something, it's one of the conclusions of the book, not to give too many spoilers, but you know, if we've lost something, we conclude it's, it's not equality that we've lost. It's freedoms, mm -hmm. basic human freedoms. Just before I ask a final question about, I suppose, the implications of all this for our future, uh, mm. methodologically, I mean, some would say, well, look, a lot of the data, the sources from that period, the pit from going way back is, is quite sketchy. It's quite limited. And that, therefore, <clears throat> provides the possibility for people with a range of very different interpretations to marshal what limited evidence there is in order to back basically any view of of human history in that period how would you how would you rebut that i mean i suppose that goes for anyone who writes i mean that's the point any any view could be it could be imposed in theory because of the lack of source data so what what would you say about that particular critique there's a kind of default interpretation that we're you know going back to where we started the conversation whenever you see a human society that's very large scale and complex and you're not quite sure how to interpret the evidence. You know, as you say, maybe there's no writing system. Uh, there's no images of, of, of obviously sort of authority figures. The default explanation is to call it a state. Oh, this is an ancient, uh, ancient state or an archaic state or some earlier version of our own uh, nation states. Um, and when scholars do that, um, very rarely, you know, nobody raises an eyebrow. It's just, oh, yes, obviously it's large and complex and therefore it's hierarchical. So the burden of proof has always been on people who want to argue otherwise. And what we do in the book is just kind of try and move away from that teleological way of just constantly projecting our own social structures and social arrangements onto what you correctly characterize as a, a fragmented and partial record of, of past human societies and just try to take those blinkers off for a minute and look at what's really there. And what's really there is staggering. Um, there are whole bodies of information that have just been kind of pushed to the margins of our whole view of human history. Let's give you one quick example. Um, you know, there's research done on a, a, a city in what's now uh, Mexico in the state of Tlaxcala, where before Cortes and the, uh, the first Spanish conquistadors uh, arrived in the Americas, they already had a fully-fledged urban form of democracy, certainly a republic. It seems to have had some kind of council or parliament. And you'd have thought this would be historically interesting, right? Um, but it turns out there's almost no literature on it. In fact, the literature is so thin that when another uh, writer uh, Charles Mann wrote his book, which is a great book, uh, 14 something or other about, uh, 
you know, the whole history of the pre-Columbian Americas. It was also kind of a bestseller. Um, he just assumed that they must have kings and, and rulers. Well, no, you know, we sort of mined down into the evidence a bit. And there's actually descriptions at first hand of debates going on in this indigenous urban parliament. Um, but there's very little secondary literature. So actually, a lot of the time we found that our problem isn't the lack of evidence. It's that there's loads of evidence, but nobody seems to be very interested in it because it's not fitting the standard narrative. So a lot of the work that we do in the book is to try and bring to the foreground bodies of scholarship that already exist, and we cite them and obviously try to give credit where it's due. Um, some of that work is by Indigenous scholars coming out of non-Western uh, traditions. Um, and what we end up with, I, I think, I hope, is a more realistic, but also just a lot more interesting and uh, and um, and um, kind of fun view of human possibilities. Well, that's what I want to end on, really, because I generally, in the hellscape in which we live, like to like to leave people with a sort of, you know, spring in their steps. Yeah. So in terms of the implications for those of us who do desire mm. a society which transcends the one we're lumbered with at the moment, which is one in which, of course, short-term profit reigns supreme over all other considerations, mm-hmm. and, of course, mm-hmm. in which various forms of hierarchy are, mm-hmm. are built into the economy, workplace, politics, hierarchy defines everything. Yeah. So how, what does, what does our past tell us about the Mm -hmm. potential for our future? And I suppose I did did say optimistic that, you know, we were the, the old, um, the old warning of, which is paraphrased often as socialism or barbarism, uh, I think always hangs over many or haunts a lot of people on the left that a hopeful future may, might be possible, but actually something far worse than what we have today is also possible. So what what do you think at least the potential tells us for, for different outcomes, positive or negative? I think you're quite right. And I, th- I think, you know, the way we imagine our capacity to change society um, is is in many ways a kind of traumatised imagination. You look at the, all the catastrophes of, of, of the 20th century, every every attempt to build some kind of utopia uh, or some kind of better society seems to just produce these kind of monstrous monstrosities, totalitarianism. And um, there's no getting away from those fears. Um, but I think we also have to accept that they were utopias. You know, they were essentially founded on myths. They were founded on... on, on false fabricated ideas about human nature and human history, both on the left and on the right. And we've reached the point where our scientific knowledge of our own history, of our own species past and of the planet, is beginning to get good enough and detailed enough to actually reconstruct uh, what the history of our species was really like. And it doesn't resemble in the slightest the conventional wisdom. So the lesson from the past, I would say, is that increasingly we don't have to rely on utopian visions and fantasies. Um, we can actually try to understand ourselves better in terms of the uh, the proof that's often under our feet about human possibilities. Um, and there are many more of them. 
um, than we're generally led to believe. David, it's been a real pleasure. Um, it is truly a must read. And I think it's so important because there've been many books which do try to look at our history as a species in ways that often bolster pretty reactionary conclusions and conclusions that reinforce the current status quo. So it's, you know, and 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 I do think for those who think, well, well, then this book just has some straightforward political agenda. It's just marshalling evidence in order to support it. That's not oh, true. Well, we really get that all the time. Yeah, we exactly. The time. And people on the right don't get this applied to them. But it, it, it's just, the reason I just... Yeah, it's very tedious. And the point is, it's, it's, anyone who reads it can show this is based on a wealth of uh, scholarly evidence of... of I know. My, 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 my favourite so far is like the accusation that we're cherry-picking. And it's like, you know, if we wanted to make up some, another silly story about human history, we could have written a really short book with, like, fairies on the cover. <laughs> it's like, you don't need a 50-page bibliography. You know? I mean, the cherry-picking is what allows you to tell those mythical stories about, ooh, once we were all in societies of equals, or once we were all nasty but brutish and violent. That's cherry-picking. That's what's been going on for generations now, because you have to ignore all, all the evidence to the contrary. So, basically... Sorry, no, no, yeah. No, no, it's important. I think get it, get it all out, get it all out of the system. This is always. I like to think my podcast is. Part. It's like a cough. It's like a a, a, yeah. a nasty. Cough. It's got to get it out. Yeah. See, see, this is part of the therapy session as well as this is like that. Thank you. Don't worry about it. Um, it is a brilliant book for dawn of everything. So make sure you get a copy. Um, so many of you already have. They've had to do a, a very swift reprint. Yeah, there there are none in the shops at the moment in London. It's a bit embarrassing because I I keep sort of. Oh, Dave, you must be devastated. Oh, it's devastating. Nothing worse as an author than bookshops being cleared out of your box because they're so popular. Honestly, it's so embarrassing. So wounding. Um, But it's it's deserved the acclaim and indeed the mass buying that has broken out. It's the mass buying, which is akin to the mass buying of pasta and toilet roll at the beginning of the pandemic, except the difference is not an irrational, not an irrational reason, but driven by the sheer excellence of the book, which is different from toilet paper. So I shouldn't have made that comparison. Um, it's been and a I real wonka bars. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. And I'm glad we've got the Star Wars theme tuned in. Uh, make sure you get a copy of the book. And David, it's been a real pleasure. And I'm glad we both got through Thank that. Thank you so much. Very, very kind of you. And I hope you feel better soon. Cheers, David. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.